From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Friday, August 10th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Another lethal attack on U.S. forces in Afghanistan. There's concern that the American drawdown is increasing the insecurity there. Also today, global food worries over corn and the U.S. drought. Plus, how to get a crater named after you on Mars. you got to be like one of these guys. People who have either contributed greatly to the science of Mars or even to the lore of Mars. For example, H.G. Wells is on Mars. Orson <laughs> Wells is a crater named Orson Wells on Mars. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. There was a stark reminder today that although America's war in Afghanistan is winding down, it's not over. A gunman wearing an Afghan army uniform apparently shot and killed three U.S. soldiers in Helmand province. The Taliban claimed responsibility. It said the gunmen had defected to their side. This is the third time this week that coalition forces have been attacked by Afghan counterparts. The BBC's Alim Makbul is in Kabul. What do you know about what happened? Well, we had slightly different narratives uh, on this from NATO and then from local officials. What NATO was saying uh, was uh, that they did acknowledge that three uh, soldiers had been killed, saying they were at a a late-night meeting in Sangin district of uh, Helmand when they were shot dead by someone, as you say, in Afghan military uniform. What local uh, officials are saying is that they had been lured into a trap, basically. They had been promised by a local commander, a man who said he was going to raise a police force against the Taliban. Uh, And uh, apparently he'd invited these uh, U.S. special forces, according to Afghan officials, to a dinner at his check post. And he was the one who turned his gun on them and that he was all the while an insurgent himself. He was someone who worked with the Taliban himself. If coalition forces are going to withdraw from here and leave somewhere which isn't uh, a haven for militants and can't be a threat to the outside world again, then of course it has to put something in place uh, when it withdraws. And the suggestion from local officials is that that is precisely what these American troops were trying to do. They were trying to build a force on the ground that might be able to fight the Taliban on their behalf. The question is, though, because the Americans are going to be withdrawing, and as you say, they will have to continue to try and raise Afghans to stand up as the Americans move out, Does that make Americans more vulnerable or at least does it make them perceived as being better targets? Well, if you take this particular case, then then of course it does. It it somehow has to interact with the local population more in a sense that it, it has to be able to train them much more to a point where they are all 
capable of taking over from uh, uh, of security of this country by the end of 2014. And we've seen incident after incident where, as you say, it's made them more vulnerable. It's made them more of a target. And I can't see that getting anything but worse over the coming months. So how, Aleem, are they looking at the withdrawal of American troops uh, there? Well, look, there are a lot of people who are fearful uh, of uh, a withdrawal because, for example, in this area where we're talking about a local commander who has proved himself to be dangerous, has, it appears, killed three uh, coalition forces, are local people going to rise up against him in favor of U.S. forces? Well, when they know that these coalition troops are going to leave by the end of 2014, they also know that people like this commander are the ones who are going to be in charge of these areas. And so they don't want to go against them. They, they want to be on side. They have to look at their own interests. And that is making it even more difficult for coalition forces. The BBC's Aleem McBool in Kabul. Thank you. You're welcome. The war in Afghanistan has not been a major issue so far in the U.S. presidential race. Still, both the Obama and Romney campaigns have been making a concerted play for military voters, meaning active duty service men and women and their families. Those voters happen to be clustered in some swing states, such as Virginia and North Carolina. The visuals are good for candidates stumping, whether they're talking at West Point or speaking to the veterans of foreign wars. But some question whether there is a military vote and whether a decade of war has changed that equation. The world's Arun Roth takes a look. One of the standard questions in the Gallup Daily tracking poll is, are you a veteran? So the organization has built up a large sample of veterans and their views over the past few months. When it comes to voting preference, the presumptive Republican nominee has a clear edge, according to Frank Newport, Gallup's editor-in-chief. Basically, we have veterans skewing significantly for Romney. Non-veterans actually skew more to Obama, but by a much smaller margin. And then when you put it all together, the sample is even. So could vets potentially swing the election? They certainly could in the sense that if we took out veterans of the population, took them out, said you can't vote, and only non-veterans voted, uh, Barack Obama would be winning uh, by four points in this sample. Obviously, that's not going to happen. And Romney's veteran edge might be a function of selective demographics. Most vets tend to be old and white, and older white folk tend to be Republican. But the conventional wisdom holds that the military itself tends to be politically conservative. Heidi Urban, a professor at West Point, decided to get some hard data. She studied the attitudes of the officer corps and found that about 60 percent said they identify with the Republican Party. And that's typically the little soundbite that you hear anecdotally or in popular news accounts. And that's been fairly steady over time. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you see that there's a little bit more of a complex story there. It turns out the majority of those who call themselves Republican were less partisan and more centrist. The majority of officers would be described as weak partisans, so not having really intense, strong partisan attitudes. And that's something that you don't hear perhaps reported as much. This could be due to the culture of the U.S. military, which drills the non-political ethos into soldiers and even discourages political activity. The military has never been a place where we go out of our way to talk about or to promote political participation. Jason Dempsey is a career infantry officer who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. He grew frustrated with the way he saw the army portrayed in the media. The view of the military as being partisan or active politically it never matched my day-to-day -day experience in the army. Election days can come and go and you may or may not notice it. 
Dempsey decided to do his own research into the opinions of soldiers, documented in his book Our Army. He found the rank and file vote at lower rates than civilians. Voting rates are higher among the officer corps, but officers are a small slice of the military. The majority of the military is made up of young men,、uh, particularly the 18 to 25 year old demographic. And I tell you, there's a lot of things that young men in that age group are passionate about, but politics isn't one of them. But has 10 years of war somehow altered political attitudes or behavior in the military? That question actually motivated Heidi Urban's research. The answer, in a word, no. People are leaving the military with pretty much the same views they had going in. You have a great experiment here with two protracted wars that really don't have a huge impact on how we think about issues of public policy and politics. Seventy percent of the officers Urban studied reported no change in party affiliation. Attitudes within the officer corps are very stable and are formed relatively early in life. It would be absurd to say that serving in the armed forces during wartime doesn't change a person, but it seems campaign managers face a stiff challenge in getting military voters to change their political opinions. For the world, I'm Arun Roth. Scientists with NASA remain focused on Mars today. They're getting the rover called Curiosity ready for its first journey across the Martian surface. It landed on the planet early this week. NASA says the initial destination will be the base of Mount Sharp in the middle of Gale Crater. Now that got us thinking: Where do these Martian place names come from? Who's got the authority to name features on another planet? Well, it turns out that job falls to the International Astronomical Union. Brad Smith heads a working group for planetary nomenclature on. Mars at the IAU. For starters, he says Mount Sharp is not the official name of the mountain. It was NASA's idea. The people with the Mars science lander knew that they were going to be landing in Gale Crater. They knew that they、uh, had this big mountain that they wanted to explore, and、uh, they asked to name it Mount Sharp after Robert Sharp, a、uh, very well-known geologist. But、um, the way that we name mountains on Mars is to give it the Latin term mons. And then the name comes from the area that was mapped out by the early telescopic observers before the space age. In this case, it was called Aeolus. So they were told that they could give it whatever nickname they wanted to. That we have no control over that, but that this name, Mount Sharp, would never appear in the official IAU database. It would not appear on official maps. Okay, so Aeolus,、uh, this large darkish area on Mars, and that's where we got the name Aeolus Mons, which we call Mount Sharp, which is in the middle of Gale Crater. Now the craters are key here because it turns out that I guess Mars is pocked by craters, and each crater has a name. Do you know if one hundred percent of the craters there do have names? No, quite the opposite. There are perhaps、um, a thousand, maybe at the most, a few thousand features on Mars that are named craters,、uh, valleys,、uh, mountains, that sort of thing. But there are a hundred thousand features on Mars that have not been named and never will be named. Probably, we only apply a name if it is a feature of specific scientific interest, one where a researcher might want to refer to it in a paper or in a presentation that he's making. Now, craters on Mars, large craters on Mars, are named for people who have either contributed greatly to the science of Mars or even to the lore of Mars. For example, 
H.G. Wells is on Mars. Orson <laughs> Wells is a crater named Orson Wells on Mars. Only and fitting. of course, <laughs> and of course, for scientists, uh, Sagan, Carl Sagan is uh, there's a crater name for him on Mars. Also, for something that's smaller than than like thirty six miles or sixty kilometers. There, we needed a category that was almost inexhaustible. So we chose small towns and villages from around the world, places with populations less than 100,000. That's an almost inexhaustible supply. And we're not commemorating these places. We're just using their names on Mars. For example, uh, we have a a crater named Gander from uh, Newfoundland and Lexington, Massachusetts is on Mars. No, seriously? And, uh, That's very yet. close to where I am right now. Wait, yes, before you go yes. on, Lexington, like mm-hmm. why? Because it's where the big battles were fought in the Revolutionary War? Well, that's true. But um, again, there's no intent toward commemoration. When a request comes in, I will just go to a map and I'll pick a town, check to make sure that the population is less than 100,000, and then submit that as a name for the crater. But you're the one who kind of puts your finger on the map and says, hey, how about Yat? Did you say Yat earlier? Yat in Niger, yeah. And the people living in a little village called Nif in Micronesia might be uh, surprised to find out that their town has a name for a crater on Mars. Why did you come up with Nif and Yat? Well, I'm trying to be highly diversified. I'm trying to get all of the nations of the world represented uh, on Mars. Now, you sound like a very humble man. Um, you don't sound like you'd have any kind of messianic complex, but like, <laughs> can you help but feel kind of bloated about this? Well, no. I mean, I've been doing this since 1973. There are other people who are, have the same kind of uh, position that I have for other planets. For example, there's someone who is looking after the craters on Mercury, the moon. But um, it's a fun job. I'll say that. It's been uh, getting a little bit more hectic lately because of the uh, increase in the amount of work that's being done on Mars. So we're getting more requests than we used to for names, but um, I can keep up with it. Brad Smith, very nice to talk with you. Nice to talk with you. Brad Smith thinks up names of places on Mars for the International Astronomical Union. He's in Santa Fe. We've got a slideshow of Curiosity's latest photos from Gale Crater. Sorry, no Martians yet. Check things out at theworld.org. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The Olympic Games in London are nearing their end. Fewer world records have been broken than in Beijing four years ago, but there have been some memorable ones in these games. The world's Alex Galifant has been our man in London these past two weeks. Alex, which performances as of now stand out most in your mind? Well, everyone's talking about Usain Bolt, and he really was incredible yesterday, the first man to have completed the retention of the 100 and 200 meter double sprints. But for me, the standout performance on the track by far of these Olympic Games was David Rudisha last night uh, in the 800 meter final. He was the first man ever to break one minute and 41 seconds. Think about that. Twice around the track in one minute, 40 seconds and change. This is David Rudisha from Kenya. From Kenya. And he was 
effortless. In fact, he was so fast, he took everybody else to the field with him. The guy who came last, a Brit who is in eighth place, his time was so fast, it would have won the gold in the previous two Olympic finals. And he came last. And, you know, the contrast to Bolt is, 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 is interesting. Rudisha is so quiet, so unassuming. And his performance was just unbelievable. Okay, well, we still have a couple more days of Olympic sports. And I wonder what you're going to be looking forward to most. Well, the final event in the athletics is the men's marathon. That's on Sunday. Tomorrow, we've got uh, the the track relays, both men and women. Um, The United States women take on the uh, French in the final of the basketball, uh, the men's finals on Sunday. But, you know, there's loads more. It's only a couple more days, but there are loads of medals still up for grabs. And then, Alex, at the end of it all, we're expecting Sunday's closing ceremony. Know anything yet about what we're going to be seeing as kind of the bookend to the Games? We know that the show's called A Symphony of British Music, so I'd like to think that we'll be treated to an evening of work by great British composers, you know, Elgar, Benjamin Britten, Rafe Vaughan Williams, Peter Warlock, but I rather suspect it'll be the Spice Girls. Um, we'll also no doubt get a taste of what Rio de Janeiro has in store for 2016 when they host the Games. Uh, Brazil will no doubt put on a small show at the end of the closing ceremony or near the end. I just really hope it's not just samba you know surely they and we can come up with something a bit more original than the tagline the samba olympics we've got four years let's get thinking so i wonder now as these games come to a close alex what uh, londoners are going to do with themselves for a few weeks at least uh, when both the olympic and then the paralympic games are over it really isn't going to be easy. I think everyone here is still a little bit surprised by how much fun it's been and, and how happy they've been during these games. Um, there are a number of plans to keep the sporting spirit going, though. Today, London announced plans for a giant weekend of cycling next year. There'll be a big ride uh, that uses much of the route taken by the Olympic road race during these games. So while the Olympics will be going to Brazil, Britons, it's hoped, will be at least getting on their bikes. OK, uh, Alex, great to have had your perspective throughout these games. Now get out there and start training for Rio. I'll swim my way back home. <laughs> Thanks. The world's Alex Galifant in London. Thanks again. Thank you. You can find more on the London Olympics at theworld.org, and we're including the latest in our Olympic poetry series. This one's on synchronized swimming. Many athletes will go home with great memories of the London Games, but some don't plan to go home at all. Seven athletes from Cameroon vanished from the Olympic Village last weekend. Five boxers, a swimmer, and a soccer player. A Cameroonian Olympic official suggested they may have defected. Athletic defections are common. Last year, 13 players from the national soccer team of Eritrea defected while they were playing in a tournament in Tanzania. Eritrea is considered one of the world's most repressive governments. Several of those athletes ended up in Houston, Texas, under a refugee resettlement program. Dario Lipovitz is the resettlement coordinator for the YMCA in Houston. He's also a self-confessed soccer fanatic. He explains how his love of soccer brought the African athletes to the Lone Star State. The reason why they ended up here, because I, I love soccer, right? I grew up on soccer. I always talk about it. People are probably annoyed by it, especially in the States, right? But, You're from the former Yugoslavia, we should say. Well, we, we like in former Yugoslavia, everybody played soccer. Mm-hmm. You know, it was soccer was religion and, you know, your, your, your team was your, your church. So I re- remember how that day when I received a text from my colleague in D.C. was like, oh, do you want Eritrean soccer players, right? And we help refugees. Very rare we get like superstars like these guys, right? So knowing that I'm obsessed with soccer, my my colleague, she's like, oh, do you want Eritrean soccer players? And I was like, sure, that'd be great, right? Not even knowing 
you know who these guys are but like you know saw being soccer players that was enough for me and that's how they actually ended up in Houston well, maybe we should talk to Daniel a little bit now. Uh, Daniel uh, Ogba-Gabriel, who is from Eritrea, was on the Eritrean national soccer team. So you you and your team, the Eritrean soccer team, had gone to Tanzania to compete. Had you mm-hmm. planned on defecting at that point? Yeah. We need a better life to, be, to have a better life. By the way, Daniel, what position do you play? I'm a f- midfielder. Midfielder. How old mm-hmm. are you? 18, I'm going to 19, almost 19, yeah. Dario, you were so interested in soccer and in these particular players that you actually tried to get them some tryouts with a, with a professional soccer team there in Houston, the Dynamo. You know, they are actually scheduled, registered for trial on September 22nd. Oh, you're kidding. So they're going to be trying out next month? Yes. Wow. We're definitely <laughs> cheering for them. You know, it's a great opportunity for them if they don't make it. You know, they don't need to feel bad. They've tried it. So Yeah, absolutely. So this will be September 22nd tryouts for the Houston Dynamo. Daniel, have you seen the Houston Dynamo play? Mm-hmm. You have. Are the Eritreans better than the Dynamo? I think so. <laughs> we are just youngsters. Oh, most of us are youngsters. If we got an opportunity to do it, I'm sure that they will like us. I wonder, Dario, what's the maybe the hardest hurdle for Daniel and these other guys since they've been here, since they've been in Houston anyway? There's a lot of hurdles for them. I mean, there's, you know, it's a bit, living in a new city is definitely challenging. Now that the Eritrean community in Houston was very welcoming to, you know, all seven of the guys. One point of time, I think somebody bought a soccer cleat for all of them. And they were, they've already played a tournament in uh Minnesota, right? Mm-hmm. In Minnesota. And believe it or not, they ended up second, which is, for me, I told them I was disappointing. I, I did expect <laughs> them to win. You are hard, Dario. I know. I'm just kidding. I mean, they, they, it's the one, you know, can be an obstacle for them is they're doing assembly jobs. Huh. Daniel's doing assembly job, right? You know, something to pay his bills. They've got to, you know, support themselves. You know, they're not training. They play once a week. That's a definitely a challenge, but we'll see. I'm very optimistic that these guys, you know, they're all young, they're very energetic, they're optimistic, and they're good guys. So if, if you know, any of the big coaches are going to listen to this, you know, we have, like, all, all positions available. <laughs> all positions available. Um, and, Daniel, you have anything you want to say to any coach who might be listening? Just give us uh, an opportunity all right. Well, they might have a chance to do that, in fact. Good luck. Dario Lipovitz, uh, Social Responsibility and Resettlement Services Director for the YMCA in Houston, Texas, uh, as well as friend of Daniel Ogab Gabriel Atabarak, who's a professional soccer player from Eritrea now living in Houston, and friend of the six other players who defected last year as they were playing the team from Tanzania. Dario, good luck, and uh, hope you learn a thing or two from, from Daniel. And Daniel, best of luck to you. We'll be rooting for you on uh, on the 22nd as you try out for the Houston Dynamo. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, San Francisco's Chinatown. 
It's always been that gateway. You know, it's the starting point. But today, fewer Chinese immigrants are looking for a start there. And so the question remains, if new immigrants are no longer a part of the fabric of Chinatown, then what would allow it to live on? The end of Chinatown, coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. Hundreds of mourners paid their final respects today to six people killed at the Sikh Temple, or Gurudwara, in Milwaukee. A man known to be a white supremacist opened fire on worshippers at the temple on Sunday. He shot himself after he was wounded by police. It's still not clear why he attacked the temple, but Sikhs in the United States have been targets of discrimination and violence since the September 11th attacks. Many of them are Indian immigrants to the U.S. Sometimes they're mistaken for Muslims. Jonathan Shaman is a senior editor at The Caravan. That's a Delhi-based current affairs magazine. Mr. Shaman, the Sikh community in India has been upset about this incident, of course. I know there's been anger expressed in the upper ranks of government. What is the nature of the reaction? Well, I think in some ways it starts with shock and sadness. It's not immediately different from what you might have in the United States. You have seen some strong statements from the government, which is led by Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, who is himself a Sikh. There has been some consternation in the parliament that has been led mostly by Sikh political parties. And they actually managed to shut down the parliament for an hour on Thursday, saying that the government should be doing things like sending delegations to the United States to educate Americans about the Sikh religion. I, I think one thing that you've seen here that's been interesting is that whereas in America, I think the Sikh community has been very careful not to use phrases like unfairly targeted because of the obvious implication that it would be fair to target Muslims, some of the Sikh political parties in India, there's been a little less delicacy about that. So they basically come out and said, look, this was a case of mistaken identity and that the Indian government urged the Americans that education needs to be undertaken to show people that Sikhs are not Muslims. In the larger realm, is this having a bigger impact in terms of shaping or changing Indians' views of either America or what life for Indian immigrants here is like? I think there is a sense in some circles that events like this are a sign that, you know, America needs to look within and police itself. So you've seen people on television saying things like America is waging a war on terrorism around the world, but they're not looking after terrorists in their own country or complaining that the American government has been slow to acknowledge the, that this is a hate crime. But I think in the long run, it's not going to have a huge impact because I think that the volume of Indians in America, the size of that diaspora community, has meant that there's a fair bit of familiarity between people here in India and what's happening in the United States. All right. Thank you for giving us the perspective from there in Delhi. Jonathan Shane, and senior editor at the Delhi Current Affairs magazine called The Caravan. Nice to speak with you. Thank you.
The shootings in Wisconsin came just a few weeks after the attack on a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Aurora is among the state's most ethnically diverse cities. In recent years, it's become home to thousands of refugees from around the world. And the shootings have some of them questioning their safety in their new home. Megan Verlee of Colorado Public Radio reports. Most of Aurora's refugee community clusters along the busy lanes of Colfax Avenue, a part of town with cheap housing and good public transportation to jobs in Denver. Headscarves and sarongs are familiar sights here as people from Somalia, Myanmar, and Bhutan try to settle into new American routines. The man charged with the movie theater shooting lived on the edge of this neighborhood, but barriers of language and culture mean many here are still confused about what actually happened. On a recent evening, locals speaking seven different languages filled a meeting room at the Aurora Mental Health Center. With plates of vegetarian samosas on their laps and translation headphones on their ears, they listened to City Councilwoman Melissa Miller try to explain. This is a very random act that occurred. This is not something that is a normal thing to happen in any community across the country. This was probably the first chance some people in the room have had to get reliable news of the shooting. Many can't read English language papers or understand American TV, so they've gotten their information from overseas websites and gossip. And it's their first chance to ask questions. I just wonder sometimes uh, to own a gun in this country. Are there limits on owning guns, this man from Somalia wants to know. Another refugee asks, how many guns can a person buy? A police officer explains about background checks and waiting periods, but the answers don't seem to satisfy many people. December Pa came to translate the meeting into Kareni for refugees from Burma. She says her community is talking about guns. They all said, why these people own a lot of guns? So maybe we should stop not to own the guns. Pa's neighbors may think gun control is the answer, but that response is at odds with many of their fellow Coloradans. Gun sales in the state actually spiked after the attack. Mara Kalin is a psychologist who works with refugees at the mental health center. She says living in a new culture is scary enough without events like this. A lot of people who were born elsewhere think of America as quite a dangerous place. And so when something like this happens, it can reinforce people's fears about being in this new country or about coming to it. In the weeks since the shooting, Setu Nepal has been getting a lot of phone calls from relatives in Bhutanese refugee camps wanting to talk about what happened. They started thinking twice, you know, whether to go to the United States or not. Like, you know, uh, shooting events everywhere happens. And, and like not only in Colorado, it happened in other states also. It happened in Wisconsin just last weekend with the massacre at the Sikh temple in Oak Creek. In some ways, that shooting may be harder on people here. Few refugees go to midnight movie screenings, so the Aurora attack occurred on foreign territory, as it were. But psychologist Mara Kalin points out that temples and churches serve as social centers in the life of refugee communities. The place of worship is a place of refuge, similar to a movie theater. It's a place of leisure, so I think that you know, it could have a similar impact on shaking people's kind of fundamental sense of security and safety in their community. Aurora doesn't have many Sikh residents, and so far news of that attack doesn't seem to have filtered down to the broader refugee community, according to Jenny Poole-Radway, who coordinates a refugee integration project. 
She's sort of hoping it doesn't. And we just told people as well that something like this happens once in a blue moon. It doesn't happen very often to try to reassure them. And then a few weeks later, it's happened again. Poole Radway and her colleagues at the Aurora Mental Health Center worry that news of mass shootings can dredge up old traumas for people who escaped violent conflicts. This summer's events are giving Aurora's refugees a rough introduction to their new country's sorrows, as well as its opportunities. For The World, I'm Megan Verlee, Aurora, Colorado. Immigrants from China have long settled in North American Chinatowns. The neighborhoods have been places for Chinese migrants to find familiar surroundings and safety in a new country. But that's starting to change, largely because fewer Chinese are coming to the United States. The world's Jason Margolis reports now on what this might mean for the future of Chinatowns. A few months back, author Bonnie Tui wrote a short article in The Atlantic magazine. It was titled, The End of Chinatown. I think end is the end of Chinatown as we know it. So we have known it as um, this home for working class immigrants, you know, the rural poor. It's always been that gateway. You know, it's the starting point. And it has been a necessary starting point. Now, if demographic conditions continue as they are, and, you know, the the great economic engine, you know, this global juggernaut that is China now continues on, maybe these uh, vast swaths of rural poor find other opportunities in China, and they don't have to come to the U.S. This is already happening. Toy cites statistics charting a slow and steady decline of Chinese immigrants from a peak of six years ago. And so the question remains, if new immigrants are no longer a part of the fabric of Chinatown, then what would allow it to live on? This question has rattled some Chinese-American community leaders in places like San Francisco, home of America's oldest Chinatown. This Chinatown started in the 1830s with Chinese immigrants coming over to work in the, in the fields. And later on, with the discovery of gold uh, in the 40s and shortly thereafter, the work on the railroads. I walked around San Francisco's Chinatown with Gordon Chin. He's founder of the Chinatown Community Development Center and sort of a local celebrity here. Hey, Lynn. You want to interview my sister-in-law? <laughs> You're blocking traffic. I'm sorry. That's okay. What were you saying? It's easy to lose focus in Chinatown. I know these streets reasonably well. I used to walk them daily to get to work. The crowded markets, tacky tourist shops, and brightly colored pagodas, lanterns, and oriental architecture. And the crush of people. It's the most densely populated neighborhood west of Manhattan. It's a place of immigrants where English is not the primary language. But as fewer Chinese migrate here, I asked Gordon Chin what did he think was going to happen to American Chinatowns. He says in a crisis... There's also opportunity. So in terms of opportunity with the growth of China, there's, there's pride with that. There's economic opportunity. There's social and cultural ties. And San Francisco's Chinatown is still very much a vibrant, bustling place. But many smaller Chinatowns, from nearby Oakland to Washington, D.C., have struggled. Chin and his colleague Gen Fujioka, who was also walking with us, know this could also happen here. But they don't see it anytime soon. Ujioko called Bonnie Tui's article The End of Chinatown an oversimplification. Bonnie's recognizing that it is a challenge. Communities have to recreate themselves, find relevance for today. It's not just about the past. And I think that challenge exists for every community, and I think Chinatowns are no different. 
To stay relevant, Chinatowns must transition to places that attract second- and third-generation Chinese-Americans, people like Frank Wong. Wong grew up in the Sunset District, an outlying neighborhood of San Francisco. The Sunset District is also heavily Chinese, but Wong says newer Chinese communities and outlying districts can never replace the original downtown Chinatowns. I, I would like to keep it the way it is. It's a, it's a symbol of, of who I am and my culture. Wong has a special attachment to San Francisco's Chinatown. He helps run a family restaurant here, the RNG Lounge. But he says many of his Chinese-American friends from the suburbs don't share his affinity for Chinatown. And Wong says over the past decade, he's seen fewer Chinese-Americans come visit. There used to be a lot more, uh, even just, you know, just events on the weekends, for example, uh, festivals or anything like that, that used to always be, you know, occurring all the time, but just doesn't happen anymore because based on the fact that not as many people would show up. And over the years, they just totally eliminate those types of things. This trend bothers him both as a Chinese-American and a local businessman. Restaurants throughout Chinatown are looking for ways to broaden their customer base. Restaurants like the New Asia. It's a cavernous but packed room with waiters pushing dim sum carts through crowded passageways. Owner Han So says he's worked hard to keep his restaurant busy. He says on Christmas Eve and day, they host the Kung Pao Kosher Comedy Festival. As the name implies, it's a largely Jewish audience, laughing, and more important to So, eating his food. Last year, So says the festival brought in 600 people. He says events like this are helping his business diversify and survive. But as Chinatowns reinvent themselves and become less Chinese, at what point do they cease becoming genuine Chinatowns? I boarded an elevator with Gordon Chin in Chinatown's first public housing project. And a lot of Chinatown families grew up here, you know, since the 50s. As we got out of the elevator, we saw several residents, none of whom were Asian. I asked Chin how he felt about the changes unfolding here. Fine. I mean, Chinatowns across the country have always been uh, very fluid. And it's not always been 100% Chinese. I also asked Bonnie Tui how she felt about the changes in Chinatown. Besides her article in The Atlantic, Tui also wrote a book called American Chinatown. And Tui has a personal connection to the one in Manhattan. I think back to the fact that my grandfather worked in a fortune cookie factory down in Chinatown when I was growing up. And the fortune cookies that were peppering my household uh, were little reminders of his path down to Chinatown every day. And, you know, I, I talked to my grandparents about how they feel about this place they lived in for for decades. And they say, you know, they're happy they left, but they were happy that it was a home for them when they got here. And while Tui writes fond portraits about American Chinatowns, she also describes the neighborhoods in stark language. Dirty, overcrowded places where immigrant families often cram into one-room apartments. You know, I want to be clear that I'm not actually of the opinion that they should be preserved as is. Tui says Chinatowns can successfully evolve. For example, she cites Honolulu's Chinatown, now a home to a thriving nightlife scene. Art galleries are popping up in L.A.'s Chinatown. These things are not, quote-unquote, Chinese, um, but they are fitting in somehow, and they're kind of finding, finding a way to coexist or more than coexist with the long-time Chinese residents in the neighborhood. Of course, that brings us back to Tui's original question. Is this the end of Chinatown as we know it? 
It's an interesting debate, but it's also worth remembering people have been predicting the disappearance of American Chinatowns since the 1920s. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, San Francisco. How about an online stroll through San Francisco's historic Chinatown? Visit theworld.org for our audio slideshow. A chance to test your geography smarts coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The latest prediction for this year's U.S. corn harvest is out today. It's looking even worse than had been thought. The government has cut its estimate of the corn crop by almost 20 percent. That's more bad news for global food stocks, since the U.S. is the world's largest exporter of corn. And it comes amid growing calls for the United States to suspend a requirement that diverts nearly half of the country's corn harvest away from the food supply to be turned into fuel instead. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, is here now. What are you hearing from Washington, Peter? Well, Lisa, today's figures from the Department of Agriculture were just the latest in a series of cuts this summer in its forecast for the country's corn production. The agency cut another 17 percent from its last projection and now estimates that the harvest will be well below last year's and likely the smallest harvest since 1995. Safe to assume, Peter, this is because of the incredibly hot weather and drought? That's right, Lisa. In fact, federal scientists have just told us that July was the hottest month ever recorded in the lower 48 states. It was also extremely dry in much of the country, in the grain belt in particular, and that has hit many corn growers extremely hard. Corn doesn't like hot weather, especially when it hits as it did in much of the country this year at pollination time. It's been especially bad news for those areas that don't have access to irrigation. Okay, so how does this all translate uh, in terms of food prices? Well, corn prices in the trading center of Chicago have already jumped 60% over the last couple of months, and the UN's food price index is up about 3% from a month ago. More generally, the droughts here and in Russia and elsewhere in the world are raising a lot of concerns that we could be looking at the kind of shortages and price shocks that we saw in 2007 and 8. And that's where this issue that you mentioned at the top comes in. The U.S. requirement that roughly 40 percent of the country's corn harvest be processed not into food for people or animals, but into ethanol to be mixed with gasoline for cars. Yesterday, the U.N.'s top food official called for an immediate suspension of what's called the U.S.'s renewable fuel standard. And he's been joined by the head of a World Bank-funded organization called the International Food Policy Research Institute and a growing chorus of voices here within the U.S., including 25 senators. Okay. Perhaps it would serve us to be reminded of the rationale for this requirement in the first place. Well, it was put in place under President George W. Bush as part of a curious and perhaps typically American mix of policy initiatives. It was partly in response to calls for greater energy independence for the U.S. to help us get off of foreign oil. It was partly to help out farmers in the Midwest by giving them a guaranteed market for much of their harvest, and partly a response to environmental concerns over greenhouse gas pollution from fossil fuels. But it's now widely seen to have been a mistake that diverts vital grain stocks away from the food supply and into a much lower priority use. And it's especially questionable policy in times like this, as we see drought and heat and, in all likelihood, the impact of global warming start to put increasing pressure on the food supply. And so is there any chance, Peter, that uh, this biofuel requirement will be suspended? 
Well, it's not very likely. I mean, it seems that it was set up in a way that creates a very high bar to suspending the ethanol mandate. But if things continue to get worse, we're certainly only going to see the pressure grow. Okay. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. And finally, we're off to Brazil for our GeoQuiz. Brazil is a country of rich cultures, indigenous, Portuguese, and African, among others. Today, we're looking for one storied group from Brazil's African community. Many of them were runaway slaves. They formed their own communities in colonial Brazil, and they were known for their cultural resistance to Portuguese rule. Their descendants still live in the Brazilian countryside. Question for you today is, what's their name? Music producer Magabo made a part of the title of his new album. He's going to have the answer after a few beats. My new record is called Quilombo do Futuro. It's a record full of Afro-Brazilian rhythms mixed with uh, urban musics from around the world, mostly sort of in the dub and hip-hop strain. So there's, you know, you find raga, dubstep, alongside samba, coco, different Afro-Brazilian rhythms. This track is called Galope. Started out more as like a grime kind of dubstep track, which uh, I went to work with Robertinho Barreto, who is the guitar player from Baiana System. He plays a small guitar called the Guitarra Baiana, which is a sort of a mini guitar. And I was really interested in the Arabic flavored melodies and, and harmonies, which come a lot from the, the Lebanese community in the northeast of Brazil. And so we we're trying to come up with kind of a trancey dub kind of Afro Brazilian vibe on this one. I'm originally from Seattle, and I, for some time, I've been working with a very small Brazilian community in Seattle. And through this group of people, I started working with Brazilian music and playing batucada and got really curious about going to Brazil and working there and uh, just checking it out. And so I ended up buying a one-way ticket, went there in 1999, and liked it so much that I ended up staying. This track is called Temples and Sanos with longtime partner of mine, Benegal. In this track, he's talking about cultural resistance in South America and Brazil. The main kind of lyric is talking about prepare yourself because the fuse is going to be lit. And he calls for resistance and rebellion. And basically all of the, the rhythms on this album are rhythms which have come from quilombos. And they're very much rhythms which have are essentially forms of cultural resistance. So the last and final song that I want to talk about is No Balanço da Canoa with Rosângela Macedo and Marcelo Yuca. This track is, is also, again, another hybrid track. It's a, it's a mix of coco. There are also elements of raga and dub in there. É no balanço da canoa que eu tô peneirando. É no balanço da canoa que eu vou peneirando. É no balanço da canoa que eu tô peneirando. É no balanço da canoa que eu vou peneirando. É 
My name is Magabo. These tracks that you've been hearing now are from the album Quilombo do Futuro, released on CD and digital, and there's also a double vinyl of the remixes. And just in case you missed it, the answer to our geo quiz is Quilombo, Q-U-I-L-O-M-B-O. It's a community of runaway slaves who influenced the music and culture in Brazil. You can watch the music video for this song. It's at theworld.org. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a good summer weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programs. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI, Public Radio International.